Hello everyone, welcome to the Seeking Refuge podcast. Today's episode features our host Claire talking to Matt Villardibo, a candidate for the South Carolina House of Representatives in District 26, about his experience witnessing refugee camps and also about his experiences growing up as an advocate within the American South. Matt Villardibo is a native South Carolina resident and Democratic candidate running for the South Carolina House of Representatives to represent District 26. He worked in engineering program management prior to his career in politics, where he gained experience with refugees when working at international sites. I guess first, um, just for the viewers, if you want to introduce yourself, maybe tell, tell them a little, about, a little bit about yourself and your career. So uh, my name is Matt Villardebeau. I'm running for State House of Representatives uh, in House District 26, which is down in Fort, up, up in Fort Mill, South Carolina, uh, York County. Uh, for I'm an engineer by trade, and um, I, I get to travel to a lot of industrial sites, and a lot of that travel has taken me around the world. Uh, and during one of those stints, I had a, an extended contract working in Saudi Arabia for about 20 months, and I, would, I was living over there uh, six to eight weeks at a time and then coming back home for two weeks. So, uh, yeah, that that's, you know, kind of what is bringing me to you with these like cool stories. Yeah. Uh, is that time in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess first I'd like to ask, you know, how was your time in Saudi Arabia? What did you like you said? I remember when we talked, you said you worked with a lot of um, refugees or something like that. So Saudi is a unique country because the Saudis don't really do anything. Um, there's no Saudi mechanics, no Saudi electricians, no Saudi plumbers. I think you see the pattern. Yeah. So everybody else does this for them. And a lot of times that labor pool is coming from a lot of third world, fourth world, impoverished nations. Um, Saudi Arabia has been in a years long war uh, with Yemen. Yemen's political instability began after a 2011 Arab Spring uprising that ousted President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been in power since 1990. By 2014, Yemeni frustration with rampant corruption, unemployment, and rising fuel prices led to unrest across Yemen, including calls for an independent southern Yemen. The impacts of conflict in Yemen are devastating, with nearly a quarter of a million people killed by fighting and through lack of access to food, health services, and infrastructure. Saudi Arabia has been accused of forcing tens of thousands of Yemeni expatriates back home into poverty and war with the enforcement of tough new rules on migrant workers under Mohammed bin Salman's vision for a Saudi's first economy. The Crown Prince's Vision 2023 policy includes two key elements affecting the millions of foreign workers in Saudi Arabia, imposing monthly residency fees were introduced last July, and a new Saudization policy that forbids employment of foreign workers in 19 job categories. Right out in the open, um, it's a like a monarchical theocracy. It's kind of hard to describe. They have kings, and uh, but they're definitely. I mean, that's Sharia law. Sharia is an Islamic law derived from the teachings of the Quran and of Muhammad. It is not a list of rules, but rather a set of principles on aspects of life, including marriage, divorce, and finance, and rituals such as fasting and prayer. Coffee and uh shooing you away because you know they're not letting you minis in that day yeah. um so it, that was unique to me because in america right i mean racism is still a problem in this country we haven't really solved that at all mm -hmm. but it's 
it's a lot more closeted, right? Um, yeah. No. It was Only way. the most hardcore bigots walk around like spouting racist words and you know sea kiling in public. Yeah. Um, so it was it was up it was off putting to me, and I always felt like attracted to the Yemenis that worked at the plant with me. I worked at a big phosphate mine in what's called the northern borders region. It's up where Jordan and Iraq kind of border with Saudi Arabia. I was about 20 kilometers from the border, uh, from those borders. Um, so I just felt a natural attraction to them and, you know, to kind of gravitate to them. And we also had a lot of uh, Libyan and Syrians working in Saudi Arabia with us, which was also unique. Um, Palestinians, all these folks that are coming from a, uh, these Islamic countries that are, you know, in the middle of war or, you know, they're being, they're in a famine. I mean, what's going on in Yemen is, is really tough to see. But yeah, no, that's really interesting. I definitely, um, I think we, as a podcast, we're wanting to do another um, either episode or news brief on Yemen specifically. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. Millions of refugees from different conflicts currently live in Jordan. The country has more than 2 million Palestinian refugees registered with UNRWA and about 655,000 Syrian refugees registered with UNHCR. Hours for me. So um, I remember one weekend I went, it was Thanksgiving and I was alone over there. It was my first time being away from my family for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to Jordan <laughs> mainly because you can drink in Jordan and I wanted to go have yeah. a drink on Thanksgiving. So um, I went to Jordan and I was also going to go to Petra. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's this really old, it's probably the oldest uh, historic site we have in the world. It looks like castles kind of. I think. I've yeah. Um, you've seen it in movies, Indiana Jones and Transformers yeah. and stuff. Um, they've like built, yeah, buildings into mountains in this deep like Canyon Valley. So, uh, but, you know, I wanted to go check all that out. And I remember uh, the guy, I basically hired a guy to be my driver for the weekend. Mm -hmm. um, and we were driving back from Petra. And I said, what is that? As we're driving in, because you just look and you just see tents and, you know, smoke for just, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Um, so he told me it was a, uh, a Libyan refugee camp so I, I asked if we could go there and he said oh yes but uh please remember no pictures and be respectful and I said oh no uh, I mean totally I mean I'm gonna I'm about to give these people every dime in my pocket more than likely so don't worry about it um I've never been to a refugee camp before um so it was it's hard to see um yeah. depending on the kind of person you are because I mean there's children there and I mean everybody's crammed into tents um I don't mean this in a derogatory way, more in just like an assertion of fact. The smell is overwhelming. Um, you know, sanitation there is at a minimum and you know, personal hygiene is non-existent. So um, that's a bit overwhelming. But I mean, especially the kids. I love kids and um, I've always felt a connection to our youth. So, I mean, I was I tried to play a little soccer with them and um they had like a makeshift football and I was like trying to teach them how to like run offensive formations. Yeah. So, um, wow. 
but it was just such a unique experience to me. I know about 25 words in Arabic, so I was able to minimally communicate with them. And I don't know if you ever see these videos on TikTok or Facebook of like guy white guys speaking Mandarin or like Telugu Indian in places <laughs> with like natives and they're just shocked. So I get that reaction generally when people hear me speak Arabic. Yeah. So that was what they appreciated it. And I've always I didn't I never went over there with um, like an arrogant attitude. I didn't know a whole lot about the Islamic faith and a lot of it was tainted by 9-11s. The war on terror that followed the September 11th terrorist attacks changed the way American culture and politics view Islam and Muslims. Attorney and author Asma Udin wrote, wrote, Surveyed data confirms Udin's claim. In 2002, fewer than one-third of Republicans and Democrats believed that Islam was more likely than other religions to encourage violence. Today, over 72% of Republicans and 32% of Democrats hold that belief, according to Pew Research Center. So... I had a lot of unlearning to do as well as a lot of learning. I agree. Um, yeah. I think a lot of Americans could benefit from like, obviously it's not plausible, but you know, from like having that experience, I think that's definitely something we, we're unexposed to. We have really no idea about these cultures, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be, I, I would, I mean, if you ever have a chance to go be, uh, you know, the white minority in a country where they don't even speak your language and you're just kind of thrusted into something, mm -hmm. take it. I mean, you it's should. do or die time when you're in those kind of situations and you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. Um, but that experience in the refugee camp, that was beautiful. Um, they wanted me to eat with them. I, you know, I'm not going to take a, a drop of food from a refugee camp. Um, but I did stay with them. And when they broke out for their late afternoon prayer, um, I went and waited by the car for the driver to finish his prayers. And then we left. Um, but, it, 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 you know, I wish I could have taken pictures and video, but, you know, pictures and video, it's hit or miss in the Middle East. Some folks aren't really fond of that. So you got to be uh, really mindful about how you conduct yourself. Of course. And I'm sure um, that doesn't even even though pictures would be like, you know, show what it was like, I feel like it doesn't even do it justice. You know, the way you're describing it, like to really be there must have been so interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to frame it for people sometimes um, without like giving it the respect it deserves. Right. It's just the, the overwhelming sense of dread I felt driving away from there, um, walking into there, walking around there. It was just... Uh, I talk a lot and I was very quiet. Um, yeah. I didn't have much to say. Wow. So it, it, it's unique. I mean, and these are still problems. I mean, these camps are still there. These people are still, those camps are still full. Yeah. Um, and kudos to Jordan. I mean, they Jordan is not the wealthiest nation over there. They don't have a lot of natural resources. So they rely heavily on tourism. But the amnesty they show their Muslim brothers and sisters and just people in general yeah. is you know I, it, it I, the jordanians really impressed me during my time over there and i mean the saudis did also i mean i don't i know i said some things at the beginning but i mean i i met some really amazing saudis over there uh, obviously only men but i mean always i never was not accepted over there i was never treated um in a poor way or um i got no sense of that filthy american sort of media driven the way hollywood portrays things is just yeah. way off kilter over i agree i've heard that also from people i've interviewed that you know there was there's a great sense of welcoming 
in those situations. That's something I definitely want to experience someday. That's yeah. Great. I mean, I went and I mean, I was there during Ramadan and I had an iftar at a friend's house. Uh, my buddy Salman, his family invited me over to his house. There were like 20 Saudi men there and, you know, three or four Americans were there with our shoes off, sitting on the floor, eating, you know, assorted meats and dates. I mean, some of the best food I've ever eaten in my life was over in the Middle East. Yeah, I'm um, sure. But those kind of experiences, I mean, I've got tons of pictures of me out in the desert and tents with these guys roasting goats. And we were there for a post-wedding celebration for one guy. And, you know, I did something called the friendship dance with him. It was, uh, you know, I was all about it over there. I wasn't going to deny myself an experience. I knew, uh, you know, once I got there, the time on my clock was ticking as far as the experience and the time I was there. So. I tried to do what I could to really live it up over there. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's awesome. I definitely think that's like, is something other people should want to, you know, experience Middle Eastern culture. It's something that's not, that's kind of looked over, I feel like, um, compared to other cultures, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, let me think about other questions. Um, so in, so when you were in the, um, when you visited the camp, I, you know, I, I know you only did a little bit of talking with them. Um, did you hear, I guess, how long some of them had been there? I'd always kind of heard that from others, but. Um, I know. So um, most, this was a newer camp. So most of these folks had only been there for like, I think a max four to five months. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that ends up being the residence for a lot of these people. I worry. That's um, what I was imagining. I, I know that in um, an interview I did a few years ago, he said that some people live like 10 years, like in these you know, what they become little communities, but yeah, imaginable. Um, do you think, and because, you know, you did visit the camp, I was, um, wanted to ask, um, you know, you have a lot of experience with the public, especially now on the campaign trail. And do you feel like Americans truly understand like what these situations are like for these people or specifically in the South, do you think people really can comprehend what refugees experience going here? I mean, it, it, I, I would say no. Um, you know, experience is what it is. I mean, the word, I, I think even the word itself is, you know, like about a personal sort of involvement mm -hmm. and like a connection you make. And you can't do that from afar. And it's easy to like not care about something when it's, you know, them or over there. Yeah. Um, and this country still deals with a lot of resentment and like stereotypical hatred for the Muslim community. Yeah. Um, again, that's something that changed a lot in me. I mean, I don't, um, I'm by no means uh, a convert to the Islamic faith at all, but I mean, I felt such a kinship over there. And I mean, they're the real deal. I mean, the, the Muslims believe beyond doubt their faith is strong and um, their holy texts haven't been edited repeatedly like other religions. Yeah. Um, they only, the Quran is only meant to be read in, it, in Islamic. <laughs> so it's in Arabic. And so it's just, uh, it's different. I mean, when they fast all day long during Ramadan, Christians give up meat on Friday. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it's just a different flavor over there. Um, with the religion being tied into the government. Um, Jordan's different, of course, but in Saudi, they're a theocracy. Jordan's a little more of a modern, even though this, 
the country makeup in Jordan is, you know, not a, is like almost 30 to 40% Christian because of all the holy sites being there. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's what I was, um, yeah, I guess I was also thinking like, do you think, um, again, kind of relating back to, you know, your experience with the public recently, do you think the South um, kind of, let me reword that. I'm trying to think how to say it. So <laughs> I'm trying to like, just think through what I'm, um, you know, want to ask. So at least for me, I, you know, I didn't grow up in the South, but when I moved here, I kind of had this idea of what the South was going to be like. Um, you know, I had always heard that the South was kind of, you know, more racist, more unwelcoming towards immigrants. That was something I was really interested in growing up was learning about immigrants and refugees. Um, but when I got here, I was kind of surprised, um, especially, you know, in my hometown of Fort Mill, um, but really everywhere about the amount of activism that is here. So I guess I just wanted to get your input on that, like what you think about how the South is viewed outwardly and, you know, how we can improve in welcoming, you know, outside populations or just really. So yeah. like I grew up in the South um, and, you know, I had like to, I had that journey. Um, I really wasn't necessarily raised up to believe that we're all equal and you shouldn't you should judge people by the quality of their character. I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on that, but you know, I, I had to get to a place as a young man. And I remember, you know, my journey's pretty neat, I think. So like, for me, it was music. Um, I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, like your mom probably know your mom's younger. Yeah. Than me. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And I remember the first time I listened to public enemy, the rap group, I mean, that like set me on the path right there. I, you know, I, yeah. I started to read more about black culture and understand the struggle of the Africans, African-Americans around the world, not just in America and not just in the South. Yeah. Um, and it was enlightening for me. And, you know, when I was in college at University of Central Florida in Orlando, I used to volunteer for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And uh, I would counter protest Klan rallies and KKK rallies, I mean, in neo-Nazi rallies. Yeah. So, you know, I've always kind of had that spirit um, when I was young to like get more directly involved. But as I got older, I kind of thought it would be better to like make myself, get myself on a path where I can be like a real change agent other than just being like that fired up youngster at a rally. Right, yeah, that's a good point. I definitely think that's something um, that's prevalent here in South, like at USC as well. Um, especially in the past few years, we've had so many, um, you know, being right next to the state house, having so many supportive, you know, rallies for, um, I remember one rally was for the people of Myanmar. Um, and then there was even some, you know, Black Lives Matter protests um, that we had. And there's just a lot of really interesting things that I guess um, I never thought about the South being, you know, how, as diverse as it is. Um, yeah. And, you know, let me just say something. I mean, yeah. like for me, like a lot of like the civil rights movement started in the South. I think people forget a lot of these things mm -hmm. and a lot of like. It, it's not as backwards as it seems. And it's, you know, I'm a proud Southerner. I don't I don't I'm not ashamed of growing up in the South. I don't have the sweet tea accent, but I grew up hunting and fishing and scouting and you know, I can get on a farm and milk a cow for you and drive a herd of pigs, but right. I'm not, I also am aware that there's a culture at, 
that has been here for too long that does seem to glorify some silliness. And I mean, I'm not about all that rebel flag stuff at all. To me, I'm an American. Um, that was an attempt by my, you know, predecessors, generations before me to overthrow my country. And, you know, rightfully they lost. So, I mean, I see it as like treasonous. And whenever I see that Confederate flag, I just, it's like, y'all, are you an American? Are you a Confederate? Right. I just, you know. I definitely think um, that's an interesting point of view to view that. So th that's kind of how I see it. Um, so, I mean, I don't think, you know, to me, like Southern culture, um, you know, that's like sweet tea and shrimp and grits and, you know, watching college football, you know, like in the SEC or the ACC teams. It yeah. isn't about like flying around a flag, you know, about our failed uprising. Um, yeah. So, but in college, so I say all colleges, I know it's a little different now. It's become more of a battleground, I feel like, at colleges. But I know when I was in college, I feel like it's important to like learn yourself in college, wherever that may be. I mean, that's where you see the abortion people coming on campus and not wanting, you know, and, and fighting against abortion. And you're able to kind of directly engage with them, you know, and I support all that. That isn't, you know, just because I feel a certain way, just because I, you know, I was like a fierce left wing Democrat in college, I'm much more mellowed out now at 49. Right. But I mean, I love locking horns with the abortion people. And, you know, when the Confederate like sons of the South would show up and start running their mouths, I loved all that. And I wanted them there. I didn't want them gone. I never wanted their voice silenced or anything like that. To me, we need this chaos in a way to make the real change right i feel yeah. like a lot of that's lost i feel like there's too much on each side that's like wanting to cancel out each other and i don't want to cancel it i mean it, it's hard truth sometimes to hear these things but they need to be heard and you know how we do away with them is not by like forcing their silence but by like setting better examples and like paving a better path yeah that's a great point i definitely i think that's a good um, I think for people to kind of realize also, um, you know, especially at college campuses and, you know, students who have moved down here from the North, um, that's something I've noticed a lot of, you know, Northern students from, you know, New Jersey, they come to USC and I've heard some of them say, you know, I was expecting everyone to be racist. And I was like, well, me living in the South since just, you know, all through high school, I thought, of course not. That's, that's a, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of activism. And I also have learned that, I guess, going to USC, like, the amount of history that's just even in Columbia um, is, you know, really impressive. I definitely think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been to the National Civil Rights Museum over in Memphis. And uh, when you see Rock Hill showing up in there and things happening in South Carolina, you're like, man, I've been there. I know where that happened. I ate at counter. So, you know, and, you know, I remember when uh, the George Floyd march happened in Rock Hill at Fountain Park. My, I brought my daughter with me and it was counter wasn't even in existence then. And a group of African-American students staged a sit-in at the McCrory's segregated lunch counter in January of 1961. The young men, all of whom attended Friendship Junior College, entered the restaurant, sat down and ordered hamburgers, soft drinks and coffee. When they were refused service and asked to leave, they declined and in turn were arrested. The Friendship Nine were successful in attracting national media attention, but Rock Hill's deep-seated segregation persisted. 
As a response, in May of 1961, Freedom Riders came to York County. Like awakening, I guess, for Northerners, I guess, don't really see that as much um, in some aspects. Yeah, and I'm different. I know that. Listen, I there's and I don't. There's people that don't want those rebel flags flying, and I get it. And I'm never like, oh, shut up. I don't want to hear it. But my point more is look at it. Don't stop looking at that thing. You use that as your motivation. Don't, you know, yeah. why you want to hide from the truth? There it is. Look at that. Stop, you know, hiding your eyes from things. We can't. And I get it. It takes all type in life. But I mean, that's just me. I look at that and I'm like, well, you know, I need to like be better than that. and Move right. my society forward. Yeah. That's a good point. And, you know, from that point, I was thinking I wanted to ask um, kind of just about your general views, um, you know, how you've been, um, I guess, how you've gone about, you know, your campaign, as um, I mentioned, like I was going to mention in our, um, you know, I'll mention in our introduction to the interview as well, that you are running for state representative. Um, and I guess I just want to know, you know, what your strategy is, what in the South, I guess, um, you know, how it's, how you're going about it. How's it going? So like, um, I am a legit real world blue collar candidate. I am not just, that's not some chintzy thing we came up with in a strategy meeting. Right. Um, you know, I wear hearing aids. I've lost my hearing because of working in factories my whole life. Um, I, my hands are covered in scars. Um, spent most of my career wearing steel toe boots and a hard hat. So we lean heavily on that. Um, you know, they're, Busting stereotypes really helps move Democrat candidates forward in South Carolina. Yeah. The last thing anybody in Fort Mill wants is, you know, somebody that's just not going to check those boxes for them. And we're highlighting the things that I support and I believe in that I believe all voters support and believe in supporting public education. Public education's there for the public, not for one or two moms who think their kids more special than the other ones. There's yeah. private options, there's homeschool options, but we have so many great South Carolinians and they're all products of the public education system in the state. And that is something to remember. Yeah. Something else we need to keep in mind. This state is falling apart around us. We got a governor who keeps touting all this economic growth we're seeing, but he's cutting them deals where they're not having to pay impact fees and they're not paying their fair share of taxes. So he's robbing Peter to pay Paul and down the road, it's going to hurt us because we can't get the infrastructure improvements accomplished. You know, we keep hearing excuses like, oh, well, you can't work with the DOT. You know, enough with all this. That's the way it is stuff. You know, it goes back to what I told you. Look at that flag. You use that to motivate you. I'm tired of all this. We're not going to get it done stuff. The DOT answers to the taxpayers. We are the voice of the taxpayers. And in the state house, we control the purse strings. We're going to bring the DOT into those chambers if we have to and have them explain to us what their overall plan is to make broad sweeping changes to the infrastructure in this state it's we, these battles of inches these half measures don't cut it for me and they don't cut it for the taxpayers i've knocked on almost three thousand doors in fort mill alone at this point and people consistently tell me the same thing regardless of republican or democrat because i knock doors not just doors that are going to be friendly to me but doors and people tell me 
you know, and I'll ask them straight up. Do you want them up there fighting about abortion? Is that what you want? You're a Republican. Do you want that? Or would you rather have less traffic because we've built more sidewalks, we've improved our roads, and we've made this town more functional, and we've taken the pressure off the roads? They want that. They don't they don't want us fighting over things that have been settled for 50 years. They don't want us fighting over two trans kids that want to play sports. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And these aren't the kind of, you know, we're there to be the voice of the voters of our constituents. We're not there to apply our own moral code to these things or further some weird agenda based on, you know, what, you know, McMaster or Ralph Norman's telling us. So yeah, I, I'm just, you know, I'm on a bit of a partisan soapbox right now, but this is just, it's how I see it. And, uh, you know, there's some great Republicans in this state. Like I said, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. You know, I, I knew what I could count on from the Republicans during those eras and right. it's a different era now. And the same with some Democrats. And it's just, uh, there are Republicans interested in getting things done in Columbia. And I look yeah. forward to working with them on, you know, after I went on November 8th. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's super um, interesting. I really, yeah, I want like our viewers to kind of hear about local politicians. And even if, you know, it is leaning to one side, I want them to, you know, kind of get an idea. Um, I definitely think I want viewers to kind of get an idea of what it's like in the South, especially during the campaign um, trail and, you know, kind of just what politicians are like down here, what, you know, locals are focusing on. Um, I also want to ask, you know, again, because in our podcast, we try to focus on, you know, refugees. Um, what do you think could be done more or what's not being done enough, you know, for new Americans? Um, you know, how can these policies impact them? How can it help them? So, I mean, we got to get a handle on the immigration crisis at the Southern border. Clearly, we know that's a problem. Um, I don't think it's being handled well at a federal level. I don't think it has been for probably 30 years now. Um, Again, the old ways don't work. We need new ways. Um, I don't know what those are. I'm a state candidate. I haven't really thought too far above that. I know that this country has a has to get back to, I don't know. I mean, do we reopen Ellis Island? I mean, the promise of America is not what it used to be. And, um, you know, we... You got a governor of a state shipping refugees from Venezuela up to another state, lying to them to get them on a plane. These are refugees fleeing, you know, Maduro. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's odd. I don't think that is a way to treat people uh, in order to blow on your partisan dog whistles. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, this country has a long way to go. People use immigration as a political tool at a federal level, and it drives me batshit crazy yeah. um, on both sides. It needs, you know, we got until we get rid of the, you know, it's like Joe Cunningham said, this like oligarchy of octogenarians or whatever he said, you know, this country cannot be exclusively run by 70 and 80 year olds it's just not working for us we need right. people with better ideas more vision and, and interested in building things for a real future uh, you know what yeah that's it, a great point i definitely think that's something like um you know all americans should be focusing on as well it's not it's definitely not a good look um for the south when those you know southern governors did that and you know our news story we're trying to kind of get a better idea. I know it's still happening right now. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that's a good point. I 
Um, also really just want to know, you know, what do you think local, like locally we could do? I guess, yeah, like on a local level, um, how, you know, citizens could be there for one another, you know, um, for new Americans, whether that be through education, um, I guess your opinion on the South and how, how we as the, as a Southern region could help. So like for me, I mean, we got to work more on, you know, how we treat people that are uh, not our color. Um, I feel like it's an easier battle if you're a refugee from an Eastern European country um, than if you are a refugee from Myanmar or Africa or Yemen. Um, This country's got a problem with skin color still. And until we are honest about that and we're willing to like make that better. I mean, it's obvious. I see it every day. It drives me crazy. I'm not trying to say people are racist. It's just we were people show their ways. And it's so obvious. Sometimes we have a large Indian community in Fort Mill and they're by no means refugees, but I just see the way that they're marginalized and treated. Um, and it's just uh it's there still. And I, I, you know, there, we have some uh, Ukrainian refugees living in Fort Mill now. Yeah. And my guess is they blend in just well, yeah. besides the language barrier. Yeah. That's so, I mean, the South's, you know, the country, not just the South, but the country at large, we still have a ways to go on improving how we uh, treat people of color in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we add the refugee part in. Um, Again, the promise of America, bring me your, your poor, your tired, your hungry. You know, we need to remember that. And that's why people are coming here. I mean, I've lived overseas. People do see this as a land of opportunity right. and um, of freedom. We got to be careful about how we manage all that. Um, mm-hmm. We're at a real press of, in the next six years here of going, you know, over the edge on some stuff and you know, I would just, that's always kind of what I, I want people to understand that. Yeah, no, you're Yeah, I definitely, I think that's a great point. People, I, I, I've interacted with so many people, Indian people, Saudi people, Egyptian people, Yemeni, um, you, Jordanians, you name it. Right. For the most part. And, you know, for the, pretty much everybody kind of looks at us is like the land of promise with the exception of some of the Europeans who look at us as the land of you're going to get killed with a gun. Um, But, you know, for a lot of these other countries where they're below the poverty limit and they've been there for, you know, almost centuries, um, America is just a shining palace on the hill. And um, I think we've lost some of that luster and I'm, I'm trying through my life, the actions I take, the life I live and how I conduct myself to, you know, help polish that up a little bit. Yeah, it's good to know that there are some Southerners who are also making, you know, that clear effort. That's something I definitely want our viewers to understand, um, especially before election day. Yes, ma'am. Um, I guess my last question, I've actually pretty good timing. Um, my last question would just be um, before election day, you know, you're running right now. What do you think people should know or be aware of, um, especially in the South? What should Southerners be doing okay so you need to be registered to vote it's if you're not it's too late registration deadline was sunday um but you need to get out there and vote make your voice heard i know it seems like 
especially if you're, I know in South Carolina, the Democrats tend to feel like they don't matter. They do matter. We, If y'all turn out to vote, we have registered 198,000 voters over the summer and almost 90,000 of them were women. There's a reason for that. And that's the key to victory for a lot of us. It is for me. I'm running a very neat campaign. I'm identifying with a lot of different voters and I'm, I've got an opponent who's not doing anything for the most part. She's already lost the ground game to me in a town she's been reelected in for 10 straight years. So, yeah. you know, vote, support with your heart, resist that, you know, that are up at the top of the ballot and go through that ballot and pick people, you know, people who you feel will better represent the needs of the community. Um, If you like this episode, please listen to our other projects on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Make sure to stay in touch with us by following our socials at Refuge Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and just by typing in and liking our Seeking Refuge Podcast page on Facebook. We hope to see you guys in another episode. Thank you.